the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, it's my great privilege today to be talking to Air Vice Marshal John Quaife, AM, retired. Now, John graduated from number 112 pilot's course in September 1981, was posted to the Strike Reconnaissance Group. After that, his operational career focused on fighter operations with his initial training on the Mirage. In 1987, he trained on FA-18 Hornets and subsequently served with No. 2 Operational Conversion Unit, No. 77 Squadron and No. 75 Squadron. He is a fighter combat instructor. Between 1992 and 1994, he served as a fast jet specialist officer in the Force Development Directorate. From 1996 to 98, he commanded Number 77 Squadron. In 1999, John was the Director of Aerospace Combat Development. And during 2001, he directed the Air Combat Group project. His team planned the amalgamation of RAAF fast jet operations into a single force element group. Then in January 2002, he was appointed to command the newly created Air Combat Group. In 2004, John was appointed the RAAF's first permanent joint force air component commander. He was responsible for developing Air Operations Centre functionality within the Australian Theatre Air Component. Between December 2004 and April 2005, Air Vice Marshal Quaif served as the Director of the United States Combined Air Operations Centre, where he was responsible for orchestrating coalition air power in both Iraq and also Afghanistan. John was appointed a member of the Order of Australia in 2004 and in June 2005 he was appointed as Air Commander Australia. In August 2007 he accepted the appointment of Head of Capability Systems and then retired from the Air Force in 2008. John, welcome. Thanks, Gary. What a career. Uh, yeah, it is rather. Yeah. <laughs> when I you hear, guess. It, when yeah, you hear guess. it in that context. Yeah, I've yeah, sure. got to start with the obvious question, why... Did you join the RAAF? I'd sort of had a love of military aviation as a very young kid. And uh, my father died when I was quite young. And I'd had an uncle uh, who had flown with Bomber Command. Uh, Fortunately for him, he was uh, on the tail end of the war years and so survived that experience. But he ended up a senior policeman in Victoria. And because my dad had died young, my Uncle Ron figured that what I needed was a bit of masculinity in my life, uh, growing up with two sisters, uh, and he introduced me to the Air Training Corps. And so it was, you know, that love of military aviation that I'd had from a very young kid uh, and moulded by my experience in the Air Training Corps that kind of left the Air Force as an obvious choice, although... I kind of got a bit sidetracked for a few years there after I graduated high school when I actually thought a career in a rock band was actually (laughs) more appropriate for my (laughs) my skills. Uh, And then, you know, sort of when when I sort of finally started to grow up a bit and realised that I need a proper job, that proper job was always going to be the Air Force if I could do it. So were you in the ATC at school? 
Nah, well, in my school years, but I was with number two flight in Preston, which was a Friday night affair. Yeah. You used to go down after school. Let's just we jump all over the place, but let's go to sure. 1981 and the Strike Reconnaissance Group. What was that all about? Uh, yeah, the bit of the story there that's behind those words is I actually got posted off pilot's course to go and fly Canberra's. Um, so I flew Canberra's for... You know, most of my time flying Canberra's was actually doing my conversion. Uh, what I flew then after that uh, didn't last very long because the Canberra went out of service. So, uh, so you know, I'd basically graduated, flown the aircraft around the southwest, South Pacific a bit, doing photo survey tasks and local tasks, uh, and then shit, two squadrons closing, uh, and I was then posted off to fly fighters. Let's just stick with the Canberra for a moment. <laughs> sure. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the Australian Canberra, based on the British Canberra, a uh, Canberra B or whatever it was called, and what yeah. the Australians did was extend the wing, change the radio cabin. Weren't there changes uh, made to the Canberra? No, not a lot. So it was a pretty much a uh, a standard. It was a Mark Twenty and a Mark Twenty One. I think the trainer was the Mark Twenty One. The bomber was the Twenty. Um, and it was pretty much a bog standard uh, in terms of equivalent to the RAF aircraft yep. that had been you know, brought yep. into service many, many years before. And that was the aircraft that served in uh, Vietnam doing high-level, more medium-level bombing. Yep. Uh, by the time I got to fly it, though, it had uh, passed its use-by date as a bomber. The Air Force had been through... Uh, Phantoms as their interim strike aircraft and the F-111 was on the scene. And by that stage, what was happening at Two Squadron was the aircraft had been um, uh, basically demodified. It no longer carried uh, bombs and it was a photo survey aircraft. So it had been fitted with um, large format cameras uh, and fitted with the control panels needed to drive the cameras, but no no great change to the the internal arrangement of the aircraft. I thought it was great. Um, it was it was a delight to fly. Uh, so it was this fast, powerful jet. Um, so it was full on jet, no oh, turbo. It was no two turbo no props. Jets. No, 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 no. So it's jet aircraft, pretty slick, pretty slick machine. Um, but but since it was a product of early jet aircraft design, it tended to reflect the layout that it might have had if it had been a propeller-driven aircraft. And by that I mean the engines were displaced from the aircraft's centreline sufficiently that that could really cause you some problems if you had uh, an engine failure in terms of uh, you know, controlling the yaw. So whilst it was a brilliant aircraft to fly, I fairly early in the piece learnt that it was also an aircraft that could kill you. <laughs> um, and you also, we operated it one pilot, one navigator. Uh, and so also this was the aircraft where I discovered there was actually a little bit more to flying than just a bloke alone in an aircraft. And so you actually had to manage a crew, which was uh, just an interesting discovery for me, which I was able to put behind me, obviously, when I went off to fly fighters. And yeah. well, Let's that stick with that, though, for a moment, John, because that process of command part of it is the experience of being able to work with other people and give commands to other people and get the respect of other people what kinds of things are necessary for that process and how important is it within the RAAF pretty fundamental really Uh, the the thing that that I guess I personally had had to learn the most on that was um that 
you know, a leader or commander has to do quite a bit more than just have expectations or just give orders. Yep. Um, you know, the uh, sort of the constant feedback loop, if you like, of testing how things are going and how people are travelling, uh, in fact, throughout my career, was something that I had to be uh, conscious of and remind myself to do. Uh, it was too easy for me to just fall into the expectation that, you know, one should ask someone to do something, it would just happen. Mm. Uh, and frequently it doesn't, uh, much to my surprise. How important is the process of admitting when you've made a mistake? Um, it goes to your credibility, really, doesn't it? If you can't do that, you've just pretty much shot yourself in the foot. Uh, you'll lose the respect of the professionals that you work with and uh, sort of all goes downhill from there. So is so that I one of the boxes important. to tick as what a leader should have? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I just that, I guess that uh, sort of if you break that down, it really just goes to honesty, doesn't it, mm. to be fairly mm. open and honest. As an operational career, when did you join fighter operations? I was really surprised that the first thing I had to do after such a brief time flying Canberra's was to go down to sail and do a what was then called the jet refresher course, but for me it was really a Mackie refresher. I'd flown the aircraft, the Mackie aircraft at uh, two FTS. Anyway, went back down there to do a Mackie refresher because where I was going was uh, two OCU uh, to do the intro fighter course as it was done then at two OCU on the Mackie. Um, so, however, that maths adds up. Uh, that's when I basically commenced uh, what was the transition on to fly. Yeah. and then from there to go and fly. And what was the, the jump from a Mackie to a Mirage-like? <laughs> that, that was a bit of a challenge. The The Mirage could be a difficult aircraft to fly. I thought it was a great aircraft to fly, by the way. I loved it. By the time I finished my time in the Mirage, it was it was one of those machines that um, it just kind of bonds to you. Uh, and it felt like, oh, I just think I need to go over there and do this and you were over there doing that. You know, it was, you didn't, it was almost like you had thought control of the thing. Uh, loved it. Um, Another jet that could kill you, that's for sure. Um, had a few experiences You had some close there. shaves. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I had some interesting experience flying the jet. But I guess where I'm going with this, it was still an aeroplane, right? So it still flew like an aircraft. I can remember here at Williamtown trying to learn circuits where I was very much following the numbers. You know, first you set this power, then you turn, you know, this angle of bank, this sort of pitch, and around the corner, and then you do this, and then you do that. And I was constantly flying myself <coughs> low on, on my approach and scaring the hell out of my instructor <laughs> in the back seat. You know, oh, taking over, lots of power to recover from the position I yep. put myself in sort of literally because he couldn't reach me, but it hit me about the head one day and just fly, just said, just fly the bloody aircraft. And and as soon as I realised that, well, actually it was a lot easier to jettison all those handy-dandy cues and just fly the aircraft. Uh, and then from there it kind of got a lot easier. Um, it was hard to fly in um, air-to-air combat, so BFM was difficult in the machine because it was really hard to see out the back. And uh, certainly with the advent of higher performing aircraft that happened towards the end of the Mirage days, that's where a lot of the bad guys would turn up. Uh, so that was difficult. Behind you. Behind you. Yeah, that was a difficult aircraft uh, to fly well in BFM because um, it could lose energy at a horrendous rate uh, when really as a fighter pilot you're trying to keep it. So it was, it was difficult. 
So what aircraft are we talking about that came at the end? Oh, of I'm it? talking about the Hornets. So, oh, you know, yeah. at the end of my time, the Hornets had arrived. I did my FCI course on the Mirage and our opposition aircraft for dissimilar training was the bloody Hornet. Um, how hard was that? Uh, so very difficult. So the Hornet had a significant advantage over the Mirage in the latter part of its career. Huge. Huge, yeah. 92 to 94, you were a fast jet specialist and you were in the Hawk. Is that – what was the oh, Hawk? I've never heard of it. No. So you, I think if I remember the words on my bio, it's referring to the time uh, – my first desk job. So I was uh, dragged out of um, – uh, 75 Squadron in Darwin to be um, a desk officer in the capa- capability development world um, that was – it started off ostensibly it was to um, figure out what we were going to do with the Mackie aircraft in its lead-in fighter role Yes, because we'd have – We'd had structural problems and we'd had a structural failure and lost one aircraft, sadly, killed, uh, killed a pilot. Um, and so the question was what we're going to do. Um, that The answer to that question eventually became, well, we're going to replace it. So we're actually not going to come up with a repair strategy. It mm. won't be an engineering strategy. It'll be a new aircraft, which led to the acquisition of the Hawk lead-in fighter aircraft. So tell me about the Hawk because it's uh – not a, a plane that I'm familiar with, and uh, maybe right. someone so, listening uh, isn't either. Uh, yeah, sure. Well, um, so the quickest explanation I can give you is for many years the Hawk has been the aircraft flown by the Red Arrows, the British oh. Royal. So there's probably a photo of them around here. Yeah. It, it was the, it and still is, I'm pretty sure, the, uh, the RAF's jet training aircraft. Um, for Australia, what we were looking for was an aircraft that had sufficient similarity to the Hornet that we could uh, offload a component of fast jet training onto that aircraft to thereby reduce the cost of doing the uh, full conversion on the frontline aircraft. So the Hawk became a transition almost into the F-18. Exactly. And as had been the lead-in fighter course done on the Mackie that introduced you to the Mirage. So it's in that lead-in fighter uh, sort of part of your training that you'll be introduced to the basics of air combat manoeuvring and the basics of air-to-surface weapons deliveries and the like. Sure. So all the sort of skills that are going to be transferable onto the operational aircraft. And so that that the degree to which the aircraft could fit that bill was a selection criteria that ended up uh, backing the Hawk as the chosen aircraft, and it's been pretty successful, so it's still in service now. It's still in, being used now? Absolutely, yeah. So we're talking the early 90s. Uh, when the aircraft first arrived in service, I don't know, because, uh, you know, for me, um, it would have been I didn't even know what the answer was at that stage. We were just running the program yeah, okay. that would eventually select the Hawk as the answer. What was the jump to uh, aerospace combat development? How did that occur? You went from desk to that, or was that part of the the next? Step no, that up? was it. So we're talking the same thing. So um, I was um, throughout my career, I would eventually, from time to time, I couldn't avoid the the pull to a desk job, right? 
and so I did a uh, a stint. Well, my my title was airspace control three. Um, which doesn't look all that flash on your business card. When I <laughs> when I first went down to capability development, um, my n- my next just sort of holy desk job was as a group captain, which was the director of air combat development, which yes. meant I was the group captain boss of the person that was now Air, Air Con 3. Uh, and I, when I went back at the end as the head of capability systems, I was the two-star boss of that same organisation. So I kept bouncing back into that same area of capability development. Mm. I'm fascinated that when a person has an expertise of some significance in, in any profession, they're pulled to a desk yeah. or they're pulled to something where they're not actually ex- exercising their skill set what it was originally intended for. Is that a weakness in the structure or is that a strength? Uh, oh, look, I, I suppose it's a strength in the sense that it um, ensures diversity of thinking um, in the organisation. But it is, uh, if I sound not totally convinced by that, it's because I'm not. Um, and I, I found it really uh, frustrating and annoying that. At those times when I wanted to express an opinion that was based on my experience that I thought was a, a uh, worthwhile opinion, mm. the degree to which that opinion would be dismissed by the bureaucrats in mm. Canberra. And that was uh, that was pretty difficult to get my head around. To have gone, in particular, like um, sort of paint the picture as being a fighter combat instructor in a squadron, um, Without being too arrogant about it, the fighter combat instructor is expected to be an authoritative source of information about the jet or or your tactics or whatever it is you're doing. Uh, To have that respect shown to you as an FCI, but then find yourself in Canberra where no one was actually interested in your uh, specialist point of view was a little difficult. Mm. In which case, how important would it be then looking to the future, that the people in Canberra who are in the bureaucracy are in fact all RAAF personnel. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Um, but you can't, because um, we can't afford that. Um, so you, you can't, you know, you literally you can't afford, you, what you can't afford is to have that to squander, if you like, the training and the expertise yeah. that the Air Force invests in its people to do specialist jobs. What you do need, however, is to be able to seed the organisation with those skills at the points where they're needed. And then you kind of need people that are okay with getting a little bit annoyed from time to time and can actually yeah, sure. stand up for themselves and go, no, actually, you need to listen to me on this. This is important and push their point of view. Yeah. So I think we do it okay. I think Air Force actually does it exceptionally well when you consider uh, the organisation currently known as CASG, where um, Air Force is far better represented in the large defence acquisition organisation hmm. than are the other services. Just explain what CASG uh, is. I, I don't know. It's um, uh, I don't even know. Acquisition and sustainment, I don't know what the C is. It used to be the old DMO, which was the Defence Materiel okay. Organisation, right? Uh, and it's a... It's a large organisation uh, that's heavily populated by defence public servants, but it's the organisation that essentially runs the projects for acquisition as well as it runs sustainment. So they um, decide if we buy another 
F well, whatever or well yeah they, they don't but the government does and the government gives that organisation the job to go and okay. off your off your title go and buy it and uh, acquire it sustain it bring it into service that sort of stuff now Air Force has a higher blue suit rep- representation in that organisation than Army or Navy do and Army and Navy will be the first to tell you that's to their detriment. Your amalgamation, I read in your bio, the amalgamation of the fast jet operations to a single element group. Yeah. What what happened there? Why? What was that? In, how well, an improvement? <laughs> oh, I suppose there's plenty to argue that it wasn't. But anyway, the, the, uh, for many years, we'd operated as... Um, the fast jet world as two distinct groups, um, the strike reconnaissance group and the tactical fighter group. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, It's a complicated stories with many interconnecting thoughts. However, uh, it was fairly apparent that where Air Force was headed was towards a... Um, a single platform capability that was likely going to be the aircraft to replace both the classic Hornet and the Pig, uh, the F-111. And that turned out to be the F-35, right? Yep. So, by logic. Um, the, the most eloquent argument supporting the establishment of Air Combat Group was that if that was the way we were going, if that was Air Force's strategy it kind of made sense to get ourselves into that organisation so we could understand the strengths and the weaknesses of the uh, the two organisations mm. mm. and prepare as best we could the Air Force for the aircraft that was going to be brought into service. Hence, Air Combat Group saw the amalgamation of Tactical Fighter Group and Strike Reconnaissance Group into that single force element group. Um, it actually, you know, I sell it short by saying there's plenty of who would think it weren't a success. I'd defy you to find anyone that actually said it wasn't a good idea. So, Well, clearly it was a success. We have the F-35 now. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't quite... Yeah, the, one, the sort of one of subtlety that I kind of would have liked there was that we never really took it, I don't believe, to what I would have thought was a more logical endpoint. My criticism is that the... F-35 program, and it's changed a little now since the acquisition of Super Hornet and the like, but it was very much focused on uh, a platform to replace the F-111. And in the early days of that program, uh, that was meant to occur after we'd acquired a platform to replace the classic Hornet. And so this division between F-111 and Hornet was fi- had found its way into the replacement program, even though everyone was thinking we're probably going to get the same jet to re- to do both mm. roles, um, and that actually led to um, decisions about well, how many squadrons do we need, and 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 the unfortunate part to that being that it was no, no more um, you know, sort of intellect applied to that than, oh, well, we've got two F-111 squadrons, so we'll need two of them, and we've got three Hornet squadrons, so we'll need three of them, which is not perhaps how you'd really do it if you were going from a clean sheet of paper, and certainly not how you'd do it if you were going from an understanding of a single force element group. So I think we've done a good job, but perhaps not as, uh, not as fundamental a review as what might have been possible. So if... Something had been possible, 
what would that possible be? Yeah, I, I think where you would have seen a change um, would likely have been in our to our group structure. Um, so um, we've as a legacy of what had come before, we our our groups comprise wings, right? So we've got eighty one wing, which is the operator that's essentially the you know sort of the legacy operator, if you like, of um, of tactical fighter group, and we've got eighty two wing, which is the if you like the legacy operator of strike reconnaissance group, and in the middle we had seventy eight wing doing training. Not so sure that that wing structure serves us as well as it might. I I would have preferred to have seen. Uh, you know, not that bothered by the number of squadrons, I'm more concerned about that wing structure because it's that wing structure that gives the Air Force its command and control capability. Mm. And so in terms of being able to um, feed, uh, you know, have experts that could come out of that wing structure and feed um, uh sort of air operations centres, which subsequently yep. I had my eyes open to in the Middle East and et cetera yep. from my bio, um, we would have been able to, we would be better placed to manage that operational level of war fighting if we'd actually restructured the wings. Mm. Um, pity, didn't. Um, whether it would have been possible or not, don't know. Might have involved more people, therefore, you know, there's always going to be an uphill battle. Um but I'm not sure we went that far. I think we were – I'm making a big deal of this, but, you know, if no. there was any guilt to be had in terms of the way we behaved, we we too much focused on what had come before rather than what had moved ahead. Okay. So in Iraq and Afghanistan, as far as the RAAF's role, how, how well equipped were we? How efficient were we? Uh, what was our relationship with, for example, the United States like while operating as an RAAF in those two fields of war? Um, let me start with the positive before I sort of put any negative spin on it and say exceptionally well. Um, in so, And that's how did we do? Exceptionally well. How did we integrate with the USAF? Exceptionally well. Um, how prepared were we to do it? Well, exceptionally well. Um I was um, commander air combat group at the time we sent our first deployment of mm-hmm. jets off to war. Um, essentially, it was 75 Squadron, but it came under some task group name. Um, and coincidentally, with Mel Hopfeld, the current chief, was uh, the uh, CEO of the unit. I, I got to tell you that what, if anything, kept me awake at night, it was my concern that we'd got it right in the intervening years, with the intervening years basically being from the last time we deployed fighters in anger, anger, Korean War, to the Middle East deployment. Wasn't there a step in between Malaysia? No, not in that sense. And, you know, so in terms of, yep, there were fighter operations happening in uh, Ubon. There were no fighter operations essentially happening in Malaysia. Okay. And there was no Australian fighter operations happening in Vietnam. So that's a long time between drinks for the fighter force, uh, and that away we go, we're off to war. Shit, I hope we've got our training right in the intervening years. Um, well, we did. Uh, no doubt, and lots of good reasons why that would be so. I could talk about the FCI course. I could talk about the exchange program um, and our close relationship that we'd maintained with our major allies, the US in US. particular, served us really well. So we did very well. Um, the I, I would also add, 
I'm sort of creeping up on the criticism, and it's not a criticism, it's just an observation. Um, the US were very generous to us. If you look at previous conflicts, the uh, opportunities that were either made available or were sought uh, by the Australian government and the, uh, the military leadership to get Australians involved at the higher levels of command mm. were, frankly, bugger all. Um, that persisted, that has persisted, um, and so I would make the observation that the Americans were gen- very generous. The, I think the Americans assumed that we would want a higher level of integration of our command people and structures than perhaps we thought. And so they were very generous in offering that to us. And so we found that we had uh, key Air Force leaders that were given the opportunity to serve in key positions through the command and control of the organisation. And the embrace to which um, our... Uh, leaders were taken into the fold was pretty significant. I I know um, Jeff Brown has a photo, a small photo that's, you know, framed on the wall of his house. So previous Chief of Air Force, Jeff was actually the Australian Component Commander. And it's a photo that was taken at the same time that he was uh, in, you know, a very small group that was briefing the President of the United States. I was like, yeah, okay, I get it, Jeff. You were there right at the top, you know. But that's, that's, to my mind, that's a great expression of the generosity of the Americans to do that. Now, the critical observation is we would never be able to stand up that type of operational command and control off our own resources, which goes back to my criticism of the group structure because we have not gifted ourselves with the depth to be able to do it should we ever need to do it. And and if there was anything about... Uh, our evolution mm. of air combat group that would worry me or that uh, sort of unsettles me, that's kind of it. And it's a little bit esoteric and hard to explain to uh, to people that have not experienced it. Understand. Um, but was it not the fact that the USA was generous in giving that experience? Did that not act to achieve what you're saying? Yes, yes and no. So, you know, the idea of Australia independently fighting a World War III type conflict scenario is pretty bloody remote. Um, however, you know, there's still going to be the, the potentially the situation where uh, the Australian Defence Force might find itself um, with like a segment of responsibility, if you like, so whether that's a geographic area or a particular role or what have you, um, where the sort of pressures that I was describing about the depth that's required in your uh, numbers and your experience base and your talent to be able to not just do the operations but also be able to command and control them, uh, yeah, we could find ourselves a bit stretched. So, yes, it goes back to the importance of um, <laughs> not fighting World War Three on your own, which course. leads you to uh, the importance of the exercise of military power in other ways than direct conflict. Yeah. Given that 2021 sees tensions existing between in the in our region with Australia and countries to our north is the RAAF sufficiently well equipped 2021 to deal with any of those emerging possibilities 
I'll say it out loud, you know, I don't think we be uh, keen on taking China on, on our own, uh, but in answer to your question, is if you look at the capabilities of the uh, Australian Defence Force, but in particular the RAAF, we've got a uh, an excellent range of capabilities that would enable us to uh, make a significant uh, case when we're dealing on our own, right? So yep. in terms of being able to mount something independent. Um, it also just happens to be the case that those capabilities will integrate really well with our major ally, okay. um, uh, allies, I might add. And so um, some of that can be, in the case of the US, pretty much a given, given that uh, a lot of our gear is sourced from the US. Mm-hmm. Um, but in other instances, the degree to which we can integrate is established through exercising and experience. So it comes back to your, uh, you know, exercising with our regional neighbours. Sure. Uh, increasingly, I think we're looking towards India for the similar sort of outcome. So it's, it's important. If you had to pick out one thing in your career, that was the highlight for me in the <laughs> RAAF. What would you pick out? Yeah, one of the things I'm actually most proud of, which I suppose is a way of answering your question, is something that doesn't appear on my bio and whatnot. Uh, uh, you know, lots of little things in terms of your interaction with people, but I'm quite proud of um, the role that I played, I believe I played, uh, in um, securing, if you like, um, our close air support capability. Um, it's a bit of a long story, um, but it was a... Uh, a capability that desperately needed upgrading since it was very much um, uh, embodied in Vietnam-type tactics. Um, and we were about to lose it. And around about the time that I was CA-77 Squadron, we brought that capability into the Hornet world, given that the Hornet was probably going to be the weapons platform delivering close air support. We changed how we did training uh, both in Air Force and in Army, and uh, then I suppose, much to everyone's surprise, at, you know, having gone from a period where we were literally, as an Air Force, about to cut the capability to save money and numbers and costs, it be, was proven to be absolutely fundamental in the way war fighting was conducted in the Middle East. And I looked at it and thought, eh, I told you so. John, uh, it's been a privilege to talk to you uh, for a couple of reasons, one of which is the frankness with your answers, uh, strengths and weaknesses, as we've had in the past. Um, You have had, um, you've played a major role in the 100-year history of the RAAF. So thank you for your time. And I'm sure you'll continue to be used, your expertise will continue to be used by the RAAF, even though you are now retired. Beauty. Thanks, Gareth. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. 
it carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.